Father, we thank you that the lessons we're going to be learning through 2 Corinthians this term are not hypothetical, but are real. Thank you that we are, we are jars of clay and yet filled with the treasure of the gospel. And so we pray that we might, we might be those, we might be a church, we might be individuals who increasingly look to you for our strength. Guard us from thinking as the world thinks. But might we more and more think as you do. Amen. Um, one of the constant pressing dangers of the church in the Bible is that the world will seep in. That is, rather than the people of God being distinctive, beautiful, and the world looking in thinking, wow, rather than a watching world looking and thinking, this is what your God is like, this is how the gospel changes lives, we lose our nerve and we end up just looking like everybody else. And we end up with a slightly embarrassing, Christianized version of the world around us. And we kind of say, wow, we're not so different really, are we? We sort of downplay the difference that Jesus makes. So we just sort of blend in. We lose our nerve. And that's not just seen in church life, that's seen in the life of church ministers too. So if you read the kind of books I sometimes read or the blogs I sometimes click onto, sometimes you get to the end and you think, where did those ideas come from? Were they from the spirit of Jesus or from the spirit of the West? And then subtly, or not so subtly, ministry can switch to becoming about comfort and ease and success. And if it's too hard, you're probably doing something wrong. Or ministry can become about looking polished and together and strong. And if it's too hard, then you're probably doing something wrong. And as we get to grips with 2 Corinthians this next term, what we will see is that Paul was writing into a context that was scarily, scarily similar to ours. He's writing to them and he's responding um, to criticism about him and about his ministry. And the criticism, though, it's not so much he will say about style or secondary things, but actually the criticism of Paul and his ministry, he says, will go to the very heart of his message, to the very heart of the gospel, to what it means to be a minister of the gospel. And the lessons that they need to learn are lessons, I think we'll see, are for us as well. Truth is, no one's quite sure who was behind this criticism being thrown at Paul. We know he's being criticised, we know he's defending himself, we know from the account in Acts 18 that, that he faced opposition whilst in Corinth, particularly there from the influential Jewish community within this great urban centre. Opposition, in fact, to the extent that the Lord will speak to Paul in a vision at night and he will say to him, and this is Acts 18, verse 9. He'll say, do not be afraid, Paul. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. Isn't that striking? The church at this point is tiny, but the Lord says he sovereignly has many people in this city who need to hear the gospel of Jesus, that they might respond to come into the family of God. And so Paul stays there for a year and a half. He leaves after 18 months, and then he hears a bit later that things are a mess in Corinth now. And he writes letters to them, a number of letters, it seems. The first letter we have, which is most likely the second letter that he sent to them, 
we call uh, 1 Corinthians, um, even though it was probably the second letter he sent. And in there, in 1 Corinthians, as Johnny was telling us, you get a glimpse of the mess that Paul was um, hearing about. So he writes to them about false teaching. He writes to them about sexual immorality. He writes to them about confusion and division in this church. It, it feels pretty mucked up. There's division in the church about individuals and favorite leaders. There seems to be division around gifting. Particular gifts were elevated and um, looked for, and particular gifts weren't. And there's possible division as well, I think, around social status in the church. And Paul writes them that letter, but it doesn't resolve things. And so then he goes to visit them, and we'll hear more about that next week. Um, And this letter in our hands then, 2 Corinthians, is a letter, it seems, after a painful visit that Paul has with them. He seems to have gone and knocked a few heads together, and now he's responding to more criticism again. We don't quite know who were causing these problems, but we do know, it seems, they believe that great Christian leaders should be impressive and eloquent and forceful and with strong personalities and just the kind of people we, we admire. Just as in our world today. That the prevailing leadership model then seems to be the prevailing leadership model today. The, the leadership model of the Hellenistic waters in which they swam seems to be just as we have it today. There was a huge admiration for, for success in their day, almost hero worship. If you were a soldier or an athlete or an orator or an actor or whatever it was, if you wanted to advance to get ahead of the pack, if you wanted to float to the top and stay out of the crowd, then you needed to be remarkable, confident, persuasive, extraordinary, or at least to project that kind of an image. And so it seems that these self-styled super-apostles, as they seem to call themselves, at least that was what Paul calls them, chapter 11, they offer that model of leadership to the Corinthian church, maybe even peddling them money for it, charging them, you give us the money, we'll give you the skills and the know-how. And yet for Paul it was the opposite. Because you see, where they sought to project an image of strength, Paul was happy to project the true image of weakness, to be honest and vulnerable, to let people in and see the real him. And they mocked him for it and they ridiculed him for it. He was unimpressive. It's the title for our series. That's from chapter 10. He was a clown. He was a fool in chapter 11. Why would you want to follow someone like that? I thought, I hope you can see how this letter is relevant for us today. Because far too easily, I think we can absorb from the world our idea of what leadership means when it comes to church. Many of us in this room are involved in different areas of leadership, different aspects of leadership at church, different contexts. But actually more than that, I think it's a letter that's applicable to all of us, whether we lead or not, but simply because as believers, we are all part of this countercultural world that Paul speaks of in the church. You see, the gospel redefines not just leadership, and there will be lots in this letter on leadership, but the gospel redefines life. The kind of things we care about, the way we see the world, the way we interact with each other. It will mean that weakness is okay. It means we don't have to hide anymore. 
It means we don't have to be a church where we wear masks and put on a front and pretend because the gospel of Jesus is more than enough. Because he is more than sufficient for the real you and the real me. It's because he can do impossible things, as we sang. Maybe a question to chew on over coffee, um, or as home group notes resume again this week, is does our predominant leadership model come from the spirit of this age or the spirit of Christ? Or, or does our understanding of life, does our understanding of living the Christian life actually come from Christ or come from the way we see the world? Let's jump in. First 11 verses or so. I think there's one big idea. I think that's worked out in two ways. And the big idea is this. The big idea is that Jesus is our model for leadership and life. Okay? Jesus is our model for leadership and life. And then that is worked out, I think, in at least two ways. But we're going to focus in on two. The first one is there on the screen. Authentic ministers share in Christ's sufferings and comfort. Verse 3 to 7. Have a look down. That comfort word is the drumbeat of this first section. It comes up nine times in five verses. And the idea of comfort is one of, of support and encouragement and consolation. In the midst of the trouble and affliction of life and the kind of stuff we go through, the God of all comfort is not distant and far off and aloof. He doesn't leave us on our own to do it on our own. He comforts his people. It's just part of who the God of the Bible is. As predominantly Jewish Christians as they would have been, they would have known something of that. They would have been well-schooled in it. He is the God of all comfort. He is the God who, Isaiah 40 says, comfort, comfort my people. How does that comfort come? Well, it's interesting. Later in 2 Corinthians, uh, the Lord will comfort Paul through the arrival of Titus. It's in chapter 7. But the comfort here seems to directly come from the Lord. The Lord himself comforts us in all our troubles. And what does he mean by troubles? Well, it's a good question. Again and again, we'll see that word coming up. Um, again, there's a rich vein of study if you want to track that idea through the letter, if you've got the Bible that can help you do that, or if you um, use the internet another time. What does trouble mean? Partly, the kind of trouble Paul is speaking of goes hand in hand with living in this place, in this time, in these bodies, where, where suffering still happens. We will have troubles. It's the now and the not yet of the Christian life. It's bodies that hurt and age and die. It's minds that don't quite work right. All the troubles are living in the world that opposes him. For Paul particularly, the troubles come from the pain of ministering for Jesus. The, the outward opposition which led to the inward pressure and the stress. As the letter goes on, Paul will, will reluctantly reveal some of that to us. Some of what it looked like for him. Shipwrecks and lashes and persecutions and all kinds of things. But his point is the Lord comforts us in our troubles. Maybe, maybe you know something of that. Maybe you know what it means to face some of those struggles and troubles and afflictions. And yet, 
almost inexplicably, you, you know the Lord is with you in the midst of them. In the midst of the mess, he's been there for you. And it's a truth we would do well to remember because it's a truth we can easily forget. We're such slow learners and we're hit with something. And how easily do we focus in on the fears in on the troubles, or how easily do we look inside and try and conjure up some sort of strength to get us through, but we look to the one who brings us comfort, because he is kind and he is good. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles. That's how Paul starts. He then colours it in a bit for us, showing us a bit more of where this comfort comes from and how it comes to us. Verse 5, do you see second half? Abounding through Christ. Problem is, it turns out our union with Christ, our being joined to him, not only brings us comfort, which it does, but also it means we share in his sufferings. So look at all of verse 5. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort abounds through Christ. Uh, And we say, well, how do we share in the sufferings of Christ? That that sounds all slightly out there somewhere. What what does that mean? It seems that these, these super apostles had forgotten Jesus. And you see, as as followers of a king who went to a cross. And as people who trust him and as part of his earthly body, the church, so we suffer because we are joined to him. There's a sense in which this world is not our home. We don't quite belong here. And as as his mission continues and goes on, as the gospel spreads, as his kingdom grows, so, so we know something of that pain, sharing in his sufferings. It was countercultural then and it is countercultural now, but whether it's discipleship or it's leadership or just simply living the Christian life, it seems to me you can't avoid suffering. As the church, as people who continue his mission, we share in his sufferings. We don't like that. Perhaps we'd rather avoid that. But it seems to me it's part and parcel with what it means to be a believer. Particularly part and parcel with what it means to be a leader. And I wonder if there's a danger as we think about what it means for God to comfort us. What we do with comfort. So imagine you're you're poorly at home in bed. You've, You've got the autumn flu. Fresh as flu has come early. Um, And someone comes to look after you and to comfort you as you're laid up in bed. What is your expectation? I don't mean passing the tissues or making chicken soup or however you like to be comforted when you're poorly. But my point is, to be comforted can easily become a thing where we are at the centre, where we are the recipient and that is it. Not necessarily in a bad sense, but where it becomes about us where we receive comfort. Striking here with Paul, though, the comfort here is a little different. There are two different ways this comfort is then worked out. The first way is there in verse 4. So that we comfort those in 
in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Do you see that? It's striking, isn't it? Comfort is to flow downhill. As our God comforts us, as we are comforted, so we then are to be those who comfort others. And I think that takes some maturity. Maturity to see the needs of others and to respond. To pass on what we have received. And some of the way God comforts us at least comes through the actions of others. Morgan Road, I have... I'm sure we have stuff to learn on this, but I have to say, often I see this lived out beautifully in this church family. Lives joined together in all kinds of amazing ways. I see those who have suffered, later comforting others with the kind of comfort they have received. The things they have learned, their experiences, they are then able to pass on to the lives of others. It said, if we live long enough, we will all face suffering. There will always be people who are facing trouble and affliction, and so there will always be people who require comfort, perhaps your comfort. Of course, that means as a church community, we need to be honest about the troubles that we face. We need to be brave and we need to be humble to reveal our weaknesses, perhaps, and our needs, to, to trust people enough to be vulnerable. Maybe you're shouldering something at the moment alone. Maybe something to do this week is to just reach out to someone and, and let us know that we might comfort you through his people, through us. It means as well, of course, that in a sense, as you are comforted, then it doesn't just stay with you. It's not just a comfort for you, but you might need to consider how in time you pay that on to somebody else. You might know what it means to mourn or to suffer chronic illness or persecution or opposition or broken relationships or unemployment or, or dashed hopes or, or loneliness Whatever it might be. You might know what it means to be a first-time parent. And you might see someone who needs perhaps comfort from the Lord through you to them. You might know how to do that. You might be the person the Lord has placed in their world to do that. That's the first outworking of this comfort from the Lord. We comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God. But comfort, again, does more than that. It also leads us, verse 6, to patiently endure. That's striking, isn't it? Sometimes the Lord does not remove the situation, but gives us the strength to endure through it. Then in verse 6, if we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer. Paul's suffering and distress, I take it as he labours for the Lord, or Paul's comfort and encouragement, all of it is for them and for their endurance. I think what's happening here is the Corinthians can look at Paul and his being comforted, his persevering, and so they can then press on. It's the way maybe that I look at you 
and see how you in your troubles are being comforted and encouraged and enabled to keep going. So when suffering comes to me, I'll be strengthened and able to keep going as well. You, you become my example. God was faithful to you and I saw it and I saw him keep you going and I saw him encourage you and comfort you. Well, now it's my turn and I'll keep going too. I'll be able to persevere with patient endurance. I am comforted because you have been. Corinthian super apostles, you've missed this entirely. For you, leadership is about self and success and winning and projecting an image. For Paul, it's about suffering and the Lord comforting. Because for Paul, it's about Christ. As Christ suffered, so his leaders also will suffer. As Christ suffered, so his people also will suffer. But actually what's interesting is that the passage doesn't just stick there. It's more than just sufferings. It actually seems to almost be death and resurrection. That is, the daily shape of gospel ministry mirrors the death and resurrection of Jesus. Authentic ministers experience an Easter-shaped ministry. What do I mean by that? Let me read 8 to 10 again for us. Paul begins to let us in on some bits of his autobiography and some of the troubles, that word again, the troubles that he went through. Have a look down, verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, indeed we felt we had received the sentence of death. But this happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He has delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us again. Do you see that? Paul's story is shot through with the language of Easter, with death and resurrection. Do you notice verse 8? Such affliction that they couldn't cope far beyond their ability to endure, despairing even of life itself. Verse 9, like a sentence of death. And yet because God raises the dead, so verse 10, he delivers them and he will do again. It's, it's a mini Easter weekend. There's suffering and affliction on the Thursday, there's death on the Friday, there's resurrection, deliverance, new life on the Sunday. Paul shows us that ministry looks like that. And in one sense, this is specific to Paul. These, these experiences, these situations, this context, this is his story. And yet I want to say that for all believers and for all ministers particularly, this is our story. Why? Both because we necessarily follow the pattern of Christ. We daily follow in his footsteps. We, we walk after his example. But also because of verse 9. Verse 9 has jumped out at me this week. These troubles for Paul have a very deliberate purpose. This happened that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. It's a scary idea. It's profoundly relevant if you would call yourself a human this morning. Because naturally we veer towards relying upon ourselves. 
And again and again and again, our, our lives move towards self. We're like the shopping trolley that's always veering towards self, self, self. And so the Lord has to remind us we're not meant to rely upon ourselves. Our faith is not meant to be hypothetical, but, but real, but lived out, where we're actually trusting the Lord. And so again and again and again, the Lord has to bring us to a real sense of our own helplessness. But we have no choice but to look to him rather than to ourselves. And it's only when we see that we can't do it that we see that he can do it. And it's very uncomfortable for us. Because we like to think we've got it sorted. Because we like to think that we're powerful and together and, and all right and we're not that weak. And naturally we are very Corinthian. But there's a sense in which a real living faith can only be built upon the foundations of our own ruin and our own anguish. Our realisation that we can't do it. I think that's true in all, all sorts of ways in the Christian life. Whether for you as an individual, me as an individual, for us as a corporate body together. I think it's been our testimony as a church over the last few years. I can say it's my testimony as your minister for the last few years. It's been rocky in many ways, I think. We sought to purchase a building. It looked dead in the water a number of times. It looked hopeless. But the Lord in his kindness was at work. Perhaps we felt that weakness as we've planted um, Cowley and then Bister. It's felt gutting, hasn't it? We've lost close friends, faithful allies. Or as we've said goodbye to others and sent them around the world. Or painful pastoral situations that we've felt the weight of. Or just the weight of all that happens as a church. The reality of life together in a broken world. The Lord has been moving us out of our depths. Out of our comfort zones. Out of our safety nets. And teaching us, verse 9, that we might not rely on ourselves, but rely on him. But isn't it uncomfortable? I know I'm still learning. Let's pray together as a church this, this academic year, as we kind of look ahead from September, that we would continue to remember to not rely upon ourselves, but on him. That seems to be the first outworking of this idea that ministry is Easter-shaped. I'm going to copyright that. I'm joking. Um, ministry is Easter-shaped. The second one, the second one that Paul describes, the second outworking of this, is that because Paul knows his weaknesses, Paul knows his need of the prayers of others. He ties his life and his ministry in with them. Have a look in verse 11. As you help us by your prayers, then many will, many will give thanks on, behalf, on our behalf for the gracious favor granted us in answer to the prayers of many. You see that 
you help us by your prayers. This whole section, in one sense, seems to undermine a bit of a caricature of Paul that you sometimes hear. He's a bit, he's a bit spiky and awkward. He's a bit of a sourpuss. He's a bit of a loner. Not the kind of guy you'd want to chat to at a party. But here we see a man who is willing to, to open himself up to admit, admit his need of others as they uphold him in prayer. Isn't that striking? He, he knows that he can't do it. And so he needs the prayers of others. Again, let me, let me thank you for your prayers from us as a leadership team at Magdalen Road. Do, do be praying for us at this time. Leadership can be overwhelming and isolating at times. Pray for the elders who, who at times, I think, can feel pretty burdened by all that we've got going on, all the stuff on our plates. So pray for the staff team as we seek to pastor and look after people. Prayers for those involved in the building project, old schoolhouse. I know many have been carrying a lot. Do be praying for those who have the privilege, the responsibility, the burden of leadership. Sometimes our danger can be that a response to hardship and troubles can be a sort of stoic isolation rather than community can be a sort of trusting in self rather than trusting in him and the prayers of others. It'd be great if we as a church could be growing in our praying. Thank you to the team who have been helping us think about our prayers and how we pray. Maybe here's a way we can mature in prayer as we pray for one another, as we see our need of the prayers of others. And you see, because we have a God who works like this, then nothing is hopeless. I'm struck again by verse 10. There's a lovely little phrase in there. On him we have set our hope that he will continue to deliver us as you help us by your prayers. I love that phrase. We have set our hope on him. Where else could we set our hope? But how often we set our hope in other things. We hope in him because of Jesus, because he raises the dead, because he is a God who delivers, because on Easter Sunday the tomb was empty. And so we have a God who will deliver his people. And so I need to say, I, I don't know what's going on in your lives. I don't know what's going on in your world, the dark clouds that loom, the thing in your diary that is coming up, the, the phone call, the hospital appointment, the, the broken relationship, whatever it is. Whatever the situation in which the Lord is teaching you to rely on him and not yourself, whatever that context, however bleak it looks, set your hope on him. Because he is the only one who can provide. Let's pray. Father in heaven, in a, in a world of strength, 
in an impressive city. We confess before you our weakness and our inability. We confess before you how unimpressive we are. We confess before you the way that so often we set our hope on the wrong things. So often we rely on ourselves and not on you. And so we long that you would expand our vision, that we might see how incredible you are, that we might treasure Christ even more. And so hope in you. Lord, we long that you would be at work in us and among us and through us. We long that you would give us the strength we need to persevere, to share in Christ's sufferings, but also to know his comfort. To experience the reality of death and resurrection in everyday life, as we see we can't do it on our own. Lord, as you humble us, as you teach us, help us please be those who learn and so who trust in you. Amen.